Hello, and welcome to Displaced. I'm Grant Gordon. Hi, I'm Ravi Gurumurthy. Today on the show, we are going to be talking about integrated development, which is essentially the attempt to think about the problems that individuals and communities face and put them in a much deeper context to both understand their root causes and then design programs around them. So when you're thinking about bad health outcomes, for example, it's really important to understand the employment status of that individual, where they live, their ability to access social services, what some of the individual constraints they have. And there's an increasing trend in social service delivery and helping the poor that tries to understand these complex pieces. And the real challenge to it, though, is that any time you actually start to look under the hood at what's going on, you paint a complex picture that's almost intractable in trying to design services in in any meaningful, cost-effective and cost-efficient way. I think of integrated development solving two main problems. One is making our programs much more effective because, as Grant says, they attack the multidimensional nature of the problem. Let's take one example that we're working on at the moment in Niger, where we're trying to prevent children becoming severely malnourished. And if you just provide an economic program, such as cash transfers, that might do a little bit, but it won't necessarily change the outcome in a fundamental way. And that's because families might might get richer, but they might not use that extra income on better food for their children. So you need to add a behaviour change component. So that's one reason why I think integrated development is interesting. The other is about scale. And let's give you another example to do with reducing intimate partner violence. We're working on how to increase the emotional regulation skills, communication skills of families so that they can uh, manage the conflicts within their relationship. And you can do that, but it's hard to make it scalable because it's expensive to put together therapy programs and in-person counselling. If we can actually piggyback uh, those services into things that are already at scale, such as, um, in this case, premarital counselling lessons by pastors in churches, or if we can drop those messages into mobile phone uh, systems, you can achieve much greater scale. So that's the promise of integrated development. It's more effective and it's more scalable. The challenge is that it makes it more complicated. To that point, this gets it, but how to design programs that actually account for context without everything becoming everything. And to talk about this, today on the show, we've got Patrick Fine, who's the CEO of FHI 360, which is a development and relief organization dedicated to improving lives through science. Patrick is a long-term development practitioner who's worked both in the field and at USAID and has been thinking about this a lot and is a vocal champion of it. Uh, Patrick also famously wears amazing bow ties, and you can see some of his acoustic guitar serenades online if you search FailFest, which is a fun and interesting way to actually hear about the ways in which some of the development programs have failed. And Patrick's got a podcast. He's going to tell us about this and more today. Patrick Fine, thank you so much for being with us today on Displaced. Thank you for having me. So how long have you been doing your podcast for? Uh, this is my second year. I used to blog. Mm-hmm. And then my colleagues came to me and they said, you know, blogging is not reaching the... So passe. It so is 2006, passe. isn't yeah. it? <laughs> so, uh, so they convinced me to do a podcast. Mm-hmm. And I was uncomfortable starting to do it. Uh-huh. 
Um, but then I, as it, as I did it, I became uh, more and more enthusiastic about it. And we do one episode a month. I see you guys do one episode a week. Or a weekly. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, that is uh, fast pace. What, uh, what's been unexpected to you about doing podcasts? Well, the conversations can go in directions that you don't predict. The, the energy generated during the conversations I've found is uh, really exciting and infectious. And it leads to uncovering ideas that, that I think both um, I and my guests haven't really thought about. And then those conversations take you into very interesting, on very interesting pathways, exploring the, the topic that, that you're discussing. And the, um, my podcast is called A Deeper Look. So I really do try to delve in with people on areas that they're working on to get their insights into those areas and also to, to uncover places where they may disagree with the orthodoxy, or I like to, I like to identify positions that are well articulated and where there's evidence to back them up that are not mainstream or that may may contradict an orthodoxy. Oh, wait, great question. Yeah. What is your favorite <laughs> non-mainstreamed, well-evidenced orthodox ideology? Well, here's something that came up in in one of my pe- podcasts that I I thought was really interesting. It was. Uh, we were talking about the Rohingya refugees, and it was um, towards the beginning of the period. It was at the beginning of this year, shortly after the Rohingya had been forced out of Myanmar into Bangladesh. And I was talking to somebody who had recently visited Cox's Bazaar, where, where the mm-hmm. refugees are located. We were talking about the role of women in those refugee camps. And because it's a Muslim minority— Mm-hmm. They pra- and that particular Muslim minority practices purda, so complete separation of the sexes, and women aren't allowed to go outside of the shelters without a male relative. And she was talking. The person I was interviewing, or not interviewing, but talking with, mm-hmm. um, was saying how limiting this is for the women that women aren't really able to play the kind of role that they need to play to help stabilize the situation, mm-hmm. need, to, need to play for the well-being of the community. Um, and it's personally limiting to them as well and disempowering. And that an example she gave was that you would have six adult women who could only go out with a male relative and only if they were wearing a burqa. Mm-hmm. So she said one of the things that that would help to empower women would be to provide more burkas mm-hmm. because the women were sharing six women would share one burqa and they'd have to wait till one till the person who was using it uh, to come back before the next person could go out say to the market to to get food or to to mm-hmm. take a child to a health center. And I found that an interesting irony because on one hand, um, burqas are often seen as a tool of um, disempowering women, of controlling women. And yet here was an advocate of women's empowerment and women's equality pointing out that in that particular situation, one way to empower women 
would be to provide more work, get more burkas into the community. And have you taken any of the counterintuitive insights from your podcasts into your work leading FHI 360? We try to. I mean, we try to uh, draw information from wherever we can. So Displaced Podcast is a great place. Hey, there we go. To, <laughs> to we planted get, that. Yeah. Get, no, you didn't. But it's a, it's a great place to get information and insights that inform our work. Mm-hmm. Mostly we try to inform our work from the people in the communities that we work with. So from our counterparts, um, from community members, from community leaders. Our, our tagline at FHI 360 is the science of improving lives. And we take that very, very seriously. And we try to make our work evidence-based and it's woven into the DNA of the organization. So across all of our areas of work and, and we're very diversified as an organization, we work in in public health, but many subsectors of public health, uh, HIV, nutrition, maternal and child um, health, family planning, uh, health system strengthening. We work in education, also very diversified from early childhood education up to uh, post-secondary and university education, and then a separate streams of work for workforce development. Uh, we work with civil society strengthening to work with uh, community organizations um, and to build institutions. And we, we try to incorporate uh, cross-cutting themes like gender, and, and social analysis, um, technology, because technology is changing everything and informing everything and shaping everything, and youth. And we see those as three main cross-cutting areas. That's a good link into the actual topic that we're going to try and focus on today, which is almost about how we organise aid more around people that we serve rather than the functional sectors that we um divide up funding and agency mandates. Because if you think about how aid is is structured, often the organisations and the funding streams are very much based on these functions like education and health uh, and and, and others, rather than client groups like uh, women, children, refugees. And you think basically those services need to be much more joined up. You call it integrated development. And first of all, perhaps you can just tell us about what problem you think we're trying to solve by uh, focusing on integrated development. Well, we came to the to be advocates for integrated development because our organization has this diversity of different types of expertise and experience. And we saw that we were not being as effective as we think we can be by working in silos. And by having teams that are very dedicated, committed teams uh, with experienced, competent people, but who have a limited view on the broader community or the, the geography or the, the core problem that, that we're trying to address. So we start with trying to understand what is the core problem, and, you sh- and if it's improving lives in lasting ways, if it's improving well-being, um, if it's community development oriented, there we believe that in order to do that, um, it is not sufficient to simply target one aspect. So, say family planning, because we do a lot of work with family planning. Uh, FHI 360 started 
as an organization that was doing research on contraception mm. and reproductive health. So that's that's in our roots. What we've seen is that addressing a particular issue like that typically doesn't advance the broader agenda or the broader objective of improving overall well-being, or if the community doesn't have the resources and the ability to also address economic issues, um, address uh, environmental issues, uh, um, health and education issues, and mm -hmm. that that led us as an organization to one say we're not doing it internally ourselves so we need to do a better job ourselves and when we think about how to address problems bringing different perspectives from the different pools of expertise that we have within the organization to bear on understanding what the issue is and then being able to work with counterparts to come up with practical value value added solutions or or contributions we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back in a sec with Patrick Fine. One of the most important things we do for our health that Grant fails to do every day is brush your teeth. Um, most of us don't do it properly. And one way to do it better is to have an electric toothbrush. Quip is a better electric toothbrush created by dentists and designers and is designed to make brushing your teeth more simple, affordable, and even enjoyable. Also, just so you all know, I actually brush my teeth too much. I brush my teeth so much that I have the gums of a 70-year-old. And the nice thing about Quip, as opposed to the hard toothbrushes that I used as a child, is that first, there's sensitive sonic vibrations, which are gentle enough on your sensitive gums like the ones I have, and for people who brush too hard, to take care of your teeth without applying too much pressure. It's also got a multi-use cover that mounts to your mirror and unmounts to slide over the bristles for on-the-go brushing. And what I really like is that brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5. I love Quip because it is taking me away from the inevitable gum surgery that I once would have to have had without it. I like Quip because uh, Grant's breath smells a bit better. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I love Quip and why they're backed by over 20,000 dental professionals. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash displaced right now, you get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash displaced. Integrated development seems really um, obvious, right? Like if you attack any problem for any individual or any community, you quickly see how those problems are related to a set of, a set of interrelated causes and challenges in the broader landscape and context that that individual community is facing. If you want to tackle uh, housing, you have to understand access to jobs. You have to understand access to health care. Land tenure. Land tenure. And it's one of these things where a challenge that I face in thinking about integrated development or kind of how to, you know, a framework for this is it's kind of like everything is everything. Yeah. And and there's something really right about that, but it's also profoundly challenging uh, to get something tractable out of that. And so what's your systematic way or what's your maybe simple way of explaining to somebody like what's out? Like where's the line between what is a part of what you can do versus what's just a kind of slippery slope that takes you into trying to – attack everything. Yeah. 
Well, I agree with you that it's not possible to do everything at once, that there has to be organization. You have to allocate resources. You've got to have um, some sort of strategy around how you're going to and, – and some sort of strategy and priorities and objectives for how to address even complex sets of problems. I try to simplify it and make it really practical. So I'll look at a particular issue – uh, for example, education for kids, and then say rather than and I'm an educator, so mm-hmm. I come out of uh, education background, and and that was what I did for for many years. Worked as an educational planner and a systems um, instructional systems uh, designer, mm-hmm. and what. Um, I now realize is that much of that work was great work, you know, looking at a school system and saying, okay, materials are an issue and facilities Mm -hmm. are an issue and we've got to address the curriculum and teacher training. We've got to address the teachers. So at the time, I was thinking of that as an integrated approach. Mm -hmm. Everything within that ecosystem. Uh, Right, but that was within the education silo. And what is now so evident is that those may be elements that need to be addressed to improve access and quality of education. But unless the kids have nutrition, have eaten enough to have the energy to learn, they can't learn. And so you you can't ignore, just from a purely educational point of view, if you don't add nutrition to that mix, if nutrition is an issue in that community, then whatever you do on the education side is not going to have an impact. So for me, it's not trying to do everything all at one time across an entire community, but it's looking from a a person-centric way and a more holistic way to say if we're going to – if the community has identified access and quality of education as its number one issue, and that's that's what – um, we're going to be allocating resources and effort to, then let's do it in a way that takes a more holistic look and looks at a variety of elements, which may ad- include health, may include uh, nutrition or, or food security, certainly would include some of the education components so that we can actually achieve the objective of kids getting in school, staying in school, and learning. Development organizations reflect, I think, the broader way we've thought about specialization in our society. And if you th- mm-hmm. if you think from the 1960s to now, how much more specialized every discipline has become as the as the body of knowledge has has grown, it becomes more and more specialized. So partly, what integrated development is doing is trying. It's a counter to too much specialization, and it's trying to harness that specialization so that it doesn't become isolated and therefore mute the impact that it could have. And um, I'm most familiar with that in the context of um, developing countries, both whether it's an urban-based program or a rural-based program. But I think the same thing applies, you know, everywhere. So, which I is, mean, which I is mean, a I, fair I, point. I, I, mean, well, I mean, I come at this actually from the experience in working in the UK government, where we had exactly the same problem for, for decades. So I started working in the 1990s in a unit called the Social Exclusion Unit, 
that said its mission. Nobody was allowed in. No one was allowed <laughs> in. But it was Bad basically joke. saying we were trying to tackle really intractable problems like homelessness right. or uh, teenage pregnancy, um, people excluded from school. And it was always about the fact that one agency was often dumping problems onto another. Right. So schools, in order to chase their education targets, excluded kids who then ended up in the criminal justice system. And this was, as you say, a legacy of increasing specialisation in the 80s and 90s. There was a whole movement called New Public Management or Reinventing Government, which was saying these agencies need to be even more focused, like a laser beam was what um, Michael Heseltine, the former Deputy Prime Minister of the UK, said. Hmm. And that actually exacerbated the coordination challenges that these different agencies had. So we then tried to create more joining up across the silos. Right. And it ranged from joining up of information so that we had a holistic view of which children is at risk, which child's at risk based on whether they've been in touch with the criminal justice system or social care or education welfare, mm -hmm. um, through to things like co-locating services so you could make them accessible. More ambitiously, having multidisciplinary teams or single case managers with a, a single budget for that whole child. and Which worked best? Well, the I'm, laser focus or the 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 combined team. So, uh, the, the, well, there's <laughs> this is a big this is a minefield. The truth is, we don't know because back then we didn't do randomized controlled trials and proper right. evidence gathering. What I would say is, I start off as a massive advocate of this whole approach of of joined up government. I think I left still believing in it, but feeling much more skeptical and believing that you need to be more judicious. And, and analytical in how you do that because I think there is this risk of a kitchen sink approach where you listen to the communities and they say your knee bone is connected to your thigh bone and <laughs> everything is connected to each other and let's make this program more complicated and costly where it's actually you need to try and work out what is the minimal simplest, simple way of doing this but one that reflects the complexity of the situation. And that is a really difficult uh, thing. You need to work out what's the binding constraint in this system rather than just chuck everything right. at this. Well, it is a hard balance to reach. And I agree with you. I, I think the danger, if you're trying to take more comprehensive approaches, is they become too comprehensive. They become both organizationally or bureaucratically overweight, um, and they become muddled. Um one thing is that we we see integrated approaches as um, needing to be contextualized and using them where they make sense. That there are plenty of cases where it's more effective, more more cost efficient, uh, and you get more impact by taking a laser focused uh, approach. So we're not against as an organization FHI 360. We don't say that never take a, a, a single sector or, or single issue approach because there are examples, particularly in public health, mm -hmm. where focusing on TB is, is really important to do and to mobilize the science around how to figure that out or focusing on malaria and bringing the science together to figure out how do you how do you cut malaria deaths in half, which is what's happened over the last 15 years, is important. So it's not that we're opposed to that. We just believe that that shouldn't be the only approach. But so I think that's an important point. And I think to your government days, Ravi, 
there's a difference between the specialization of knowledge and the organization of that specialization. We may be very well doing better by having more expertise, larger bodies of evidence, more general knowledge about education, health, the things we care about. It's actually just how you structure it, right? And so it's, you know, do you join up organizations or not? Not do you have specialized knowledge, although you could make the argument that actually too much expertise is one of the fundamental problems with you know, development and relief, but that's a that's a side piece. I right. So if I were to capture it correctly, I think it's about how you structure specialized knowledge, not necessarily about the presence of specialized. That's knowledge. right. It's how you organize your efforts. We struggle with it because we're a large organization. We're geographically diverse, so we work over sixty countries in all regions of the world. Uh, we have thousands of employees, so. One of the things that we've found is that we have to, as an organization, be more disciplined in promoting um, people-centered, holistic approaches, and then in creating the kinds of policies and organizational mechanisms that incentivize the use of those mechanisms. And we've done that in a variety of ways, some some which have been more successful than, than others. But one example is, well, first we invested in understanding the evidence base for integrated approaches. And so we're a research, part, part of our DNA also is in research. So we have a really strong research function within our organization. So what's the, what's the best example from the research of integrated development working? I mean, there are a number of really powerful ones. One is integrating family planning and maternal and child health services with HIV programs. I know I know one example where there's a, a young woman, she went to the clinic on Tuesday, her child was sick. It costs um, the equivalent of a week's pay for, I mean, uh, basically all the money she had to pay the clinic fees, but it was HIV day. So they did, you know, they tested her for HIV, but they didn't treat the child. And then they told her, no, you have to come back tomorrow for that because that's that's maternal and child health day and would have to pay again. So that that's one area. I think that there's broad recognition that um, at a um, health facility to having a, whole, a more holistic approach that treats the individuals who come in as complete individuals, not just there for malaria or not just there to have their child checked out for vaccination or for HIV, but to take a more holistic approach. The other really, I think, powerful example is from the education, and it's the one I mentioned, of combining nutrition with with education services. And then there's the famous case you know, of providing some basic health services like deworming kids, which which was found to have an, a, a big impact on kids' health. So you've got you've got a captive audience. You've got you know six and seven year old kids who are showing up in droves to schools, and you have an opportunity there to to take a number of basic steps that are going to make a huge impact, not only in their ability to learn, but in in their long term health and life outcomes. Yeah, I mean, I, I think about. Early, 
early childhood as being the best example where integrated services is absolutely essential. Mm -hmm. Because if you think about a child from naught to five, you need services for parents to maybe help them gain enough employment so that they've got enough income. Or you need parenting services so that they can be better parents. You also need to be able to stimulate and nurture the child. Right. You also need to provide nutrition um, for that child. And without that combination of education, social care, health, um, you may not really get the outcomes that you need. Um, so I think there are lots of good examples. We're working in other areas. You mentioned nutrition. One of the challenges in preventing malnutrition is that you need to both raise family incomes, but also make sure that those families use that money to increase the diversity of the diet of their children. Right. And you may find that an economic program alone, like cash or agriculture, will increase family incomes, but it may not then go on the child. So we're looking at how you can use behavioral nudges to try and make sure that that income is used for the child. Um, you know, I, there's a, there was just published a study about the use of, of direct cash transfers to help alleviate or help, help families uh, come out of extreme poverty. And it's, was this the Craig McIntosh and Andy Zetlin paper from Rwanda where it was comparing cash to nutritional programming that's by USAID? That's correct. Yeah. And it's gotten a lot of— I'm glad of, I just read that it, this morning. It, it's got a lot of, of, um, uh, of attention. And one thing that's important to point out is that in the cash program, because the way it, the way it's been portrayed is that, well, you had a managed intervention, you know, a traditional kind of managed development intervention, and then you just had the the provision of of cash to poor families, and that on the basis of a of a very short. Like sort of a, a year, sort of a quasi experimental. It was eight months, I think. So months. A, a quasi experimental um, uh, research that that the cash produced better nutrition outcomes. But what's important to note is that in the cash um, L, uh, component of that experiment was behavior change communication around nutrition. So the families were were given information about using the resources for food for their young children. So there was a nutrition information component, and then there was also a finance component where the participants got cell phones mm -hmm. and they were and they were banked. So there was a banking component so they could transfer the cash electronically through the cell phones, which didn't come out in all of the press around around the uh, that particular experiment. So I actually think this is a really interesting experiment that potentially pushes against integrated development. So if I if I read it right, and we'll put it in the show notes, um, as well as some of the articles that were posted on New York Times and Vox and um, Wall Street the Journal. bank yeah. on it there, this was a randomized control trial in which there were three treatment arms. One was a nutrition program that was kind of your traditional USAID-funded uh, nutrition Managed program. program, yeah. Managed program, yeah. Um, and then there were two different types of primarily cash treatment arms. One was essentially, if I remember, around 75% of uh, the amount of cash um, if you calculated the per-cost intervention of the managed program, and then one that was actually substantially more. Right. Um, and That's uh, another good point. And, yes. uh, <laughs> and the impressive part was that actually, if I remember correctly, and, um, and, and I may be wrong, neither of them, neither of the treatment arms had any impact on actual nutrition. Um, they had no statistically significant findings on the kind of key intended outcome goal, but cash 
had bigger effects on pretty much all of the other outcomes that we care about. Asset wealth, reductions in debt was a big uh, measurement, and some of the other pieces. And so I think one reading of this is that um, – well, actually, nothing improved nutrition. <laughs> Neither cash nor the managed nutrition program. I thought that it said that there were some that there were some nutritional gains with the larger cash grant, but sorry, sorry, what, sorry. There was reductions in maternal uh, um, mortality rates with the larger that, cash grant, but with, not not the intended nutrition. What the intended right. nutrition uh, managed program was. Right. The third, yes, the third um, treatment arm that was a large sum of cash, like radically reduced um, uh, maternal mortality in ways that were like way off the spectrum as compared to benchmark studies. Right. But with the intended goal of new, but n- none of the kind of intended outcomes were actually shaped. Um, and so to me, I think one interpretation of that is nothing affected nutrition. Like another interpretation is, well, cash is kind of strictly dominant on all of the other outcomes that we care about. And so I think one of the potential counter arguments from this and, you know, a broader movement in cash is that actually what we've done wrong in development is doing all of these managed programs. And what you don't want to do is actually just add more managed programs together, together, even if they're integrated. What you need to do is actually strip it down and just give people money. I mean, that's exactly, uh, although I sort of buy the argument completely that one, um, often these problems are interrelated and you need to sometimes address all the different causes. And two, um, by integrating one service within another, you can sometimes massively increase reach and scale. So you can piggyback, for instance, on a mass platform right. like churches and religious institutions or mobile phones uh, and reach more people. So I think there's lots to be said for the argument. But I do really worry that um, you you end up designing programs a bit like decorating a Christmas tree and you make it ever more complicated with more and more technical advisors and and that adds a lot of cost, but also complexity. You suddenly have this multiple, you know, many components, and it's very very hard to roll out or scale. I'm imagining a Christmas tree with just lots of technical assistance <laughs> from the as ornaments. But so, so I, I think the question for me is, I think it's really really good to keep testing the integrated development model against a sort of simple large cash transfer well, to keep in, us honest. Yeah, integrated development doesn't ha- that model does not have to be overly complex. Um, again, if you if you identify what the primary objective you're seeking to address is, and then you look at different components that can le- help you a- achieve that objective, that that can be very practical and not overly complex. With respect to and sorry, uh, just when you when so let's say you take the single outcome, do you start building up the interventions one by one? And so let's start with just a cash transfer, let's maybe add some nutrition advice. If that still doesn't work and produce the outcome, add more. Or do you start the other way around, almost like a Jenga game, start with the big package and gradually take away uh, particular bricks? Um, It depends. (laughs) (laughs) It depends on uh, what your counterparts want you know, what their vision of how to address the problem is. And usually for us, those counterparts are the governments that we work with. So it might be the government of Zambia or, you know, the the governments in the countries. It could be uh, the district um, managers like the district health office that that might be our principal uh, counterpart or an education office, or it could be community and uh, community leaders. So, one thing that that we feel super strongly about is not to go in with the notion that we have the answers. 
we believe that this kind of work, whether you do it in the U.S., because we, we work in the U.S. in uh, poor and marginalized communities in the U.S., or we're working overseas, requires a huge dose of humility. And to recognize that we can bring ideas, we can bring a, a willingness to listen and to collaborate, and we can mobilize different types of technical knowledge and uh, technology, but that it's, we've got to do it collaboratively. We really reject the idea of coming in and imposing solutions. Uh, we think that listening is the essential skill for a development worker. So in terms of what's the right sequence, you know, do you do you start small and then add things or do you start big and <laughs> take things away? I think usually in in the kind of in the way that programs are financed is that the funders agree on an objective and then they want to know what your plan for achieving that objective is. And in very it's not very often that you have funders that are going to allow you to really experiment or take a lean startup approach where you say, you know, we're going to iterate, we're going to change our metrics every six months as we, as we learn new lessons. Not only do funders not want to do that because it feels like there's no accountability for the stewardship of their funds if, if that's what a, a particular organization is proposing, especially when you're working at scale, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they'll agree to that for a $300,000 program or maybe even for a million dollar program. But if you're working at scale across several states in Nigeria and you're talking about millions of dollars, uh, neither the government of Nigeria nor the local um, health facilities nor the funders, the international funders are going to want to have a uh, experimental, iterative, lean approach. So f f my view is that there's. it's not that one approach is, is better than the other. It's not that integrated uh, development is better than a, than a laser-focused approach. It's not that cash transfer is better than managed programs. That there's a whole, these are all tools that we have and that we should be thoughtful when we work with counterparts about, about those tools and how they work. It, I mean, my, this is a personal view. It's not, uh, you know, there's some evidence to back it up, but it's not my colleagues at FHI 360 who are so evidence-based would call me for, mm -hmm. for asserting this. They would point out this is an assertion. It's not it's not fully evidence-backed. But my, my view is that if the objective is to help families come out of extreme poverty, that poverty of one that's $1.90 a day, I think right now is the mm -hmm. definition. And if your objective is to get families above that threshold, that cash transfers are probably the best way to do it. And you can, you can look at context and figure out with your counterparts, you want to make those conditional on certain things like, like a nutrition intervention or an education intervention or a, you know, uh, mothers mm -hmm. getting antenatal care, or do you want to just make it a straight transfer? But my, my personal view is that if that's the objective, just to get people above the extreme poverty threshold, mm -hmm. then that's, 
that that's a good tool. It might not be the only tool, but that mm -hmm. definitely needs to be on the table as one of the tools. But if your objective is to help a community uh, ensure that its kids get the kind of education and skills so they're going to be productive uh, members of their community, or if your objective is to build health systems that can meet the needs at scale in geographic areas, then cash transfer is probably not the right tool. Patrick, we've, we've talked about loads of examples of integrated development, like early childhood development or combining cash and nutrition. But if we were going to try to experiment and develop some new ideas, what are the, what are the areas which you're most interested in exploring? Uh, there's a couple. One is social enterprise and impact investing. So at FHI 360, we've set up our own uh, social enterprise facilitator which uses our global platform because we have uh, offices uh, around the world where we come in contact with a lot of innovators um, who are s small business people with innovative ideas for how to address issues in their communities. They're right at the coalface, so they've got a personal stake in, in addressing the issue. It's private sector driven, so there's that element of sustainability that's built into it if the idea is successful. Um, and I see that as, a, as an important trend over the last 10 years or, yeah, probably mm -hmm. 10 years. And it's one that we as an organization are building our own capacity to understand and be able to play a positive role in. And uh, we've started to, to, with our social enterprise facilitator, which is really a vehicle for identifying early stage enterprises that have a social purpose or, or product, service or product, and then working with the entrepreneurs to help them scale their business into a profitable business. And um, we're doing that not through a grant mechanism or we're doing it through making investments. So we set up a, a separate subsidiary. It's a for-profit subsidiary. It invests in these businesses. We hope to get a return on that investment. And that's a very different mentality, mm -hmm. you know, to move from the grant kind of investment uh, or uh, way, mode of operating to, to a investment mode of operating is it requires a whole mental shift. I, uh, one of the things that one of the ways that I've found it useful to think about those two different types of funding that we've talked about here on the podcast before is grants-based financing is like a hundred percent loss. Yeah. You like you give it all away, it's gone. Don't You're not tell anyone. Anything back. <laughs> um, whereas like social enterprise investing is looking to make a return that's usually below market rate um, in some sense because that's kind of very competitive capital and it's valuing some of the other social impacts and that's kind of why it's taking less of a economic return right. per se. Well, and in in our case, um, we're not. You know, we're not targeting a below market rate return. We'd like to see some real returns from the businesses that we invest in. So we're taking more of a venture mm -hmm. approach where we're we're um, thinking if we invest in 10 businesses over a couple of years, some of those businesses may fail and not produce any return. Some may produce a modest return, but we hope that there will be some that will produce an outsized return that will build in 
our ability to sustain those kinds of investments. I'm looking forward to the day where we have enough evidence on just the general um, impact and cost efficiency of development or relief interventions as well as then social enterprise interventions because your failure rate – I think there's an, an accepted uh, acceptance on the uh, social enterprise or private market side that like – a lot of businesses aren't going to work. Like yeah, there's just going to be a failure rate. 80% figure is what people usually throw out. And on the development side, I think that everybody's like very hesitant to say, no talk about tolerance. failure. No tolerance, no for, tolerance failure. for failure. Um, so you have to have 100% success rate. And there's a huge <laughs> failure rate, as we know, from a, the emerging evidence. Because that's the way the world works. And so I'm curious to see what the comparative rates are. I think yeah, we should take bets. There, there's actually – I wish that there was um, more honest comparison of the effectiveness within the development community and the work that it does compared to the commercial community. Because we're often told the commercial community, it's more, it's more uh, efficient, it's more disciplined, and they're held up as an ideal. You should be more like them. Um, when I look at our operation – we're a big global organization. We operate at scale across the entire globe. We have thousands of employees. So we have to understand the labor rules and the, the regulatory environment in 70 countries. We've got very sophisticated communication and IT systems that are able to connect thousands of people. Our finance system, highly sophisticated because we, we work with hundreds of different funders who have different requirements and we have to have squeaky clean cost accounting that shows how we're how we are using all of the resources that we get for the purposes for which they've been entrusted to us and we we really take pride in being good stewards of the resources we get that stuff is complex it's sophisticated it takes a really high level of management and I would go head-to-head -head with Johnson Johnson with any of the big companies. And the difference is – I know I'm going long. The difference is that the commercial companies have big margins. They have profits, millions and millions of dollars of profit that they can invest in those systems. And the nonprofits don't. We don't have margin. The, the funders don't give us resources to invest in, in those kinds of systems. And yet, the, I, I think the nonprofit sector punches above its weight. So, so we've covered a lot of ground in terms of um, integrated development. on IT infrastructure, um, nonprofits. I mean, we, we covered various different examples of integrated developments that occur on the ground. I want, I want to final, end this by talking about what are the ways in which we can enable that to happen on a much larger scale. And when I think, again, back to my experience, one of the conclusions we drew was that it was very, very difficult for frontline agencies to join up across boundaries when the funding uh, and the inspection and the accountability is so siloed. Right. So, um, you know, the police are not going to think about the impact they're having on the criminal justice system if they're only being tasked by um, hitting certain police targets. Schools are not going to worry about pushing people into the criminal justice system if they're just being judged on exam results. So as a result, what we ended up doing was merging the funding and mandate at a central level. So one of the things I was involved in was creating a ministry of children and then a a director of children's services in every uh, city. And instead of having separate budgets, we had a single budget and a single children's inspectorate that held people to account on multiple outcomes. Now, if we did that in development, if we didn't have the functional 
uh, mandates and, and budgets, do you think we would get more joining up on the on the on the front line? And it does actually relate to a, a previous um, podcast we had with Jeremy Conondike, mm-hmm. who was making a similar point that essentially we need to have pooled budgets at country level, have impartial needs assessments, and and basically not lock ourselves into these silos so early, which is a very, very radical idea because it requires us not just to do some tinkering at the margins, but fundamentally change the way we structure and finance aid. Right. So I I think that some reform in how we finance aid uh, could be very helpful and a reform that allowed um, allowed some failure, was more more honest about failure that that allowed for more experimentation, for iteration, and for more flexibility in working with the actual stakeholders about what their priorities are and how to meet them. So, and I've been a long time advocate for um, having uh, the resources that are invested in development programs being flex more flexible, so they can really respond to to the the needs that are being expressed by by the people you're working with. On the other hand. I, I worry about over-centralization because I think in, in development, it's got to be context-specific. And but couldn't you just decentralize the budget and pool it at a country level or, or below? You, you might be able to. I mean, the, I, I think it would be interesting to, to look at that. My, my one caution would be um, to, to beware of a situation where – you're organiza- you're bureaucratically over centralized and then now you've got one individual who's like the the um, czar of how those resources are used because that can become that can become dysfunctional in its own way. Patrick Fine, thank you so much for being with us on Displaced. Thank you. Great thank conversation. you so much, Patrick. Thanks for listening. Our senior producer is Golda Arthur. Jelani Carter is our associate producer. And Jarrett Floyd is our engineer. Vox Media's executive producer for audio is Nishat Kerwa. And a huge thank you to our team at the International Rescue Committee, including Catherine Long, Alex Bandea, Taryn Turner, and Ben Moskovitz. Please drop us a line and tell us who you'd like to hear on this show. We would love to hear from you. Email us at displaced at rescue.org or drop by at rescue.org backslash displaced. And subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening and see you next week.